In the United States alone, millions of people spend billions of dollars a year trying to get their minds right. There are overlapping fields of therapy, psychology, psychiatry, where people know I'm paying good money to talk to an expert from some different philosophy, some different school of thought, who's supposed to tell me how to get my head straight. And the reason, I think one of the main reasons that we spend so much money talking to experts in the field of psychology or psychiatry is because we intuitively understand I can't fix who I am. I can't fix what I'm doing unless I first fix the way I think. Most of you understand you do what you do because you think what you think. And simply changing behaviors is like rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic and getting them in straight rows as it's tipping more and more. You understand if I want something to be right in my actions, I need to change the underlying heart, the root of it. And so I'm gonna share with you a secret this morning, which is really no secret because Paul tells us in Colossians 3, and he's saying here in this text we're gonna look at, the only lasting and ultimate way to fix your mind is to fix your mind on Jesus Christ. Okay, so Colossians 3, if you're there with me, we're just going to make it through four verses this morning, so we've got time to really understand what he's saying here. He says, if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. And this is the word of the Lord. Now this text is all about your identification with Christ. And we know that because of this oft-repeated phrase, with Christ. You know, even backing up to last week in chapter 2, verse 20, he says, he says, you have died with Christ. Here, verse 3, or verse 1 of chapter 3, you have been raised with Christ. Verse 3, you are hidden with Christ. Verse 4, you will appear with Christ in glory. So what he's saying is, if you're a Christian, if you are a follower of Jesus, if you're someone in apprenticeship to him, he says a fundamental truth, a, a pivotal and defining reality in your life is this identification with Christ, this association with Christ. And it's a whole lot more, as you see here, than just you associate with Christ, you get to go to heaven when you die. You'll see here that Paul says this identification with Christ impacts you at least three ways. One of them is past, one of them is present, and one of them is future. So I'm going to give these to you. And then we'll review as we go through this. But Paul says here, identification with Christ gives you redemption for your past, reorientation for your present, and reward for your future. So we're not going to go in that order, but let's start with the past. Redemption. Paul says, if you were with Christ in, your, in his death, then you have redemption for your past. And verse 3 is pretty startling, right? He says, he says for you have died. Okay, I think it's obvious he's not talking about your heart stopped beating and you physically died because there's no point in writing a letter to people that are dead. But he's talking about people that are spiritually dead in this sense. He's saying, if you are associated with Christ and Christ has died and then risen from the dead, if you're associated with him in that death, 
He says, then you are dead to your old way of doing things. You're dead to the sinful flesh. You're dead to, as he says in chapter 2, verse 20, you're dead to being controlled by the elementary principles of how this world works. So let me just explain that. Well, what's he talking about? Dead to the elementary principles. Well, a, a, an elementary principle of the physical world is gravity. So if I jump off this stage, I'll fall the 18 or so inches to the ground below because we all know this elementary principle, what goes up must come down unless you're dead, in which case that may be your physical body, but that's not the true self, the whole self anymore. You're somewhere living forever and there's a resurrection body. And in a sense, that gravity doesn't have the same control over you. That's in a physical sense. Well, in a spiritual sense, a, an elementary principle of the spiritual world is that sin and holiness are incompatible. You can't have them both in the same space at the same time, which is why sin separates us from God. So just as that first principle is true, what goes up must come down, so too the second principle is also true, the penalty for sin is death and separation from God. And that's a problem for all of us because we've all sinned. So unless we could somehow be released from that elementary principle, we're in serious trouble. But that's actually exactly what Paul means when he says, you have died with Christ. He's saying, here's a way. When you die, you're separated from, you're severed from a whole bunch of different things, including the claim of the law over you. So what does Paul mean when he says, you died with Christ? Well, backing up a step, why did Christ die? I mean, the Bible says that Jesus Christ lived a sinless life. He did not deserve to die as you and I would deserve to die. And yet, at the end of his life, 33 years or so, he went to a cross. Why? Because the Bible says that's what our sin deserved. Okay? He graciously offered himself in our place. He substituted himself for his people, for his brothers and sisters, basically. Okay? So in his death, he's taking our punishment. He's taking our penalty. He's saying, whatever it is that you deserve, put it on my record so that I can give you my record so that he can give you his record, okay? There's this fun thing in sports every year, every season. It's called the trade deadline. If you know how this works, as you're counting down toward the playoffs, and the handwriting's kind of on the wall for a bunch of teams, like you're not going to make the playoffs. You're, you're not gonna be a contender. You're not, there's not gonna be a postseason for your team. And then you've got some like bubble teams that they need to win two of the next three or all three of the next three if they're gonna get into the postseason. And then you just got the, the teams that are at the top and they know they're in. They can kind of shut it down, get some rest for some key players and so on. Well, the, the trade deadline, if you don't know, what, what basically happens is these good teams that are either going to the postseason or hoping to go to the postseason, they go to these lousy teams, right? And they say, hey, we want to steal a couple of your best players. So we're going to trade you the future. We'll give you our second round draft pick next year, but we're taking this player from your team to try to make a playoff run now. Now, here's the thing. If you are part of that transaction at the trade deadline, and let's say you were on a team that was 4-12, and 12, like you didn't have a whiff of the playoffs, but you join a team that's 12 and four, guess what your record is the moment you sign that contract? 
you're 12 and four. And you should live like you're 12 and four. It would be foolish for you to continue living as if you are four and 12, okay? This is not unlike the gospel. That God did everything necessary to redeem you from the sin, the brokenness, the weakness of your past. But, but how is it that you identify with that? How do you receive that or get credit for what he did? How do you benefit from what Christ did? And Paul's saying here, you simply identify with him in repentance and faith. And when you identify with Christ, those key words... His death counts for you. So now you don't have to go on under this elementary principle and pay for your own sin or be separated from God. You just receive this gift, okay? Why is this important? Because there are some of you sitting here listening online and you're going through life and you're looking at your past one of two ways. Either you're in denial or you're in defeat, Maybe you go back and forth between those two things. Denial is kind of like, I'm not that bad. I was not that bad. And maybe even in moments of coherence, you even realize, like, I'm lying to myself. I, I did those things. I was defined by those things. But you don't like to think about what you are guilty of, and so you just, no, nah, that's, not, that's not me. I'm better than that. Or like I say, you're going through life in defeat where there's just guilt and shame and regret. Some of you are living with a ton of regret. And the only function of that guilt and shame and regret in a believer's life is to steer you to the grace and the mercy and the forgiveness of Christ and be done with it. It is not to carry it around like a backpack feeling like it's just your burden to bear because you did those bad things. So what Paul's saying is you don't have to go forward in denial about the past, but you also don't have to go forward in all this shame and regret and defeat because you realize I died with Christ. He took the payment. My past is redeemed. I've been rescued. I've been restored. Now that moves us into the present, which I said is reorientation. I'm going to skip that and come back because that's kind of where Paul lands. So let's jump over the present to the future, look at one thing, and then come back. So if you're taking notes, we're going to point three, and we'll come back to point two because that's fun, and that's different. We don't do that every week, okay? So verse four, he's talking about the future now. So he's saying in the past, like Christ died, you died with him. Future, verse four, when Christ, who is your life, appears, he says, then you also will appear with him in glory. So if the first point is describing how Christ redeems your past, this third point is talking about how Christ rewards your future. And notice this phrase, you are with Christ in glory. Now, the future hope of our faith is that Christ himself will return. He will appear. That is, he will be seen, but also he will be known for who he really is, okay? And it says he will appear in glory. Now, I don't think that glory here is like a euphemism for heaven, as in way up yonder in glory. Because if you're saying way up yonder in glory, maybe you use glory as a euphemism for heaven, but that's not what Paul's doing. Paul is using the word glory to refer to this splendor and beauty. I, I always picture it as like, you know, when you look in the sky and you see a rainbow after the storm. I mean, usually here in Colorado, you're looking east over the plains and you see this beautiful rainbow-like display. And our boys are learning this now. Roy G. Biv. You know, you see this whole spectrum of colors. That's like the glory of God. 
that it is his justice and righteousness, it's his mercy, it is his truth, it is, it is every perfection under one umbrella. And basically we get this picture in the Bible that because we're broken and sinful, we can't bear to be in the same place at the same time as that glory or we'd basically be destroyed. So the entire story of the Bible, if you don't know the Old Testament, is basically God makes us, we were without sin, Adam and Eve fall, we sin, we're, we now inherit a sin nature, Adam and Eve get kicked out of the garden because they can't live next to that tree of life. And ever since then, people are longing and pursuing and working and hopefully in some cases trusting to get back into the presence of God. But the interesting thing is when Paul says these words, the Jews hearing this would, I think it would have been a little bit of shock because they would have said, like, what do you mean you will appear with God in glory, Paul? I mean, Abraham couldn't appear with God in glory. Moses, who asked to see that glory of God, and God says, no, you, you can't. Like, I would have to put you in the cleft of this rock on the side of the mountain and pass by, and I have to, as it were, put my hand over you and then just remove it, basically, so you could just see the backside, like the diminishing, you know, going away of my glory. And when he came down off that mountain, he had to wear that veil, if you remember this story. I mean, the David and the kings couldn't see the glory. Isaiah and the prophets couldn't be in the same place as that glory. And now what Paul's saying is, now everyone who identifies with Christ will live forever in the presence of that glory, that radiance, that splendor, that power, that beauty, forever. And this is important. If you, if you don't know Christianity, some of you, I know every week, some people are here just simply exploring. What, what is it that you people believe? And thanks for being here. And for engaging in that listening and that conversation, that dialogue, what we believe is that the ultimate reward of seeking God is not just forgiveness. That is not the ultimate. Forgiveness is just a means to an end. Okay? Eternal life and even heaven is not the ultimate reward. You ever have one of those panic dreams of like living forever and it didn't seem wonderful? You're like, oh man, like... It's kind of nice that you get to die after many, many years of many pleasures and not have to worry about this panic thing of like, wait, going on and on and on forever. Because if, if forever isn't wonderful and beautiful and good and creative and interesting, you would not want to live forever. That would be somewhat of a damnation to live forever, okay? No, the, the ultimate prize of seeking God is that you get God himself, and not dialed back, not the hand over you so you don't really see, not, not even the incarnation of Jesus, which you see the, the, the fullness of his compassion, his love, his truth, his justice, his mercy, all those things. But, I mean, Philippians 2 tells us that Jesus did not put on a free display of everything that he was because it, it would have crushed us. But the future reward that he's talking about here, if you're with Christ in his glory, one day he's not gonna dial it back for you. You just get to see all the beauty, all the splendor. You ever see something like maybe in the mountains or something, just a, a sight that just takes your breath away because it's so beautiful and you feel a sense of awe? We, our, our culture has largely lost the sense of awe because everything's awesome to us. We have, we have a song, everything's awesome because you're on a team. Well, that's great. Teamwork's fantastic, but we've lost our sense of awe, and this is what we get forever, according to Paul. 
is that there's a reward for our future is with Christ in glory, beholding his power and his glory and his beauty and his awesomeness forever, okay? Now let's back up and talk about this in-between time. So you've got a past, a redemption, you've got a future, a reward. Now he says, now what are you gonna do about this living in the in-between time? Like I know Christ has rescued me and I know I get this in the future, but I have this great big undetermined length of in-between time. What do I do with that time? And he says, the way that the withness of Christ is supposed to impact you now is that it reorients everything about your present. I probably don't have to tell you our culture, Western culture, especially progressive, like urban Western culture, is enamored with living in the present. And very few people think very infrequently about how does my past inform this decision right now, or how does the past, like history, what's going on? How does that inform this moment that I'm living in right now? And they also are not great about looking forward to, if I do this now, what would be the positive consequences? What would be the negative consequences? So maybe I shouldn't do that, right? Because the present is everything. What Paul is saying here is that the, the present isn't all there is. The past informs it. The future informs it. You need context. By the way, context is really important, right? It's, con- it's important for everything. It's important for communication, okay? So if I, if I read you one sentence without context and I said, let's go for three, what does that mean? Let's go for three. That's, that's one of them, yes. Okay, so <laughs> Kelly said another baby. Yeah, so a woman with two kids comes to her son, or her son, no, <laughs> comes, no, scratch that. I don't know, delete that offline. Um, comes to her husband and says, Let's go for three with that sparkle in her eye. You know, she's talking about, I want another child, okay? Or it could be fourth and seven from the 22, and the coach says, we're gonna have to kick the field goal. We're not gonna try for it. Let's go for three. Or you ever been at the party, and the guy's already carrying two drinks, and he walks up to the person serving, and he's like, let's, let's go for three. We can pinch that third one in there. You know, context matters for something as simple as that. Well, in life, context is just important. How do you know anything really about the present unless it's been informed by what's happened up to this point? And if you knew that certain things were absolutely true of the future, would those not influence your decision now? For example, if you had bought Zoom stock in January for $68 a share, would any of you have taken that bet if you knew what was coming? Our entire world is shifting to Zoom here in two months. Okay, you'd be seven times richer right now. If you had known the future with certainty, it would impact, it would reorient your present. It just would. But Paul is speaking of the future with Christ with the kind of certainty that we now look back in hindsight and say, oh, I wish I would have bought Zoom stock for 68 bucks a share. Or how about this one? Back to the trade deadline analogy. If you were Ray Bork, the greatest NHL defenseman to ever live, statistically speaking. And you had just been traded in 2000 from the Boston Bruins to the Colorado Avalanche. Would that not impact the way you live your life, knowing I'm going from a team on the rapid decline, the Bruins, to a team that's contending for a Stanley Cup? Okay, so I should probably move to Denver. 
I should probably pace myself. He was at the end of his career. He was older. I should probably pace myself for a long playoff run instead of just burning out with these young guns that are up and coming, okay? But that's the whole gist of Paul's argument here. He's saying, if you have identified with the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, this association fundamentally reorients your thinking, so act like it. And that's what we're going to look at in the next two upcoming weeks where he's saying, here are some things that are removed from your life because it is true that you're identified with Christ. Here are some things you basically like put on and practice because you're identified with Christ by his grace. Okay, so let's look back at verses one through three where he says, if then you have been raised with Christ and he's assuming that that's true of you because you're a follower of Jesus, then seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on things of the earth, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And these ifs and thens and fors are really important because Paul's showing you the gospel association, identification with Christ reorients your thinking these two ways. First of all, Paul's saying, pursue and focus on the things that are a reflection of Christ's heart. And he says it like this, seek the things that are above. Set your minds on things above. And that's really generic, and the Greek is even worse. Because the Greek says, seek the above stuff. It does. Set your mind on the above stuff. And you could make that overly, oh, I, man, I just don't know what he's talking about. Well, we do. We're thinking in terms of, okay, if it's the above stuff and who's there, he's just said it's Christ seated at the right hand of God. So we're starting to think like, okay, so then what does Christ love? What does God hate? What does Jesus prioritize? What was Jesus' mission? And if I'm setting my mind on above stuff and I know that Jesus is above and I know that certain things are true of him, certain things are not true of him, then I want to reorient my thinking to think, and that's why I put it this way, in a way that I'm thinking on things that are a reflection of Christ's heart. You ever do this? You go through the course of an ordinary day, get up, you know, grab your breakfast, you're out the door, maybe rushed, you forgot something, but you're off to work or school and you're just plunged into your academics, your classes, your, your work, all these decisions that you're making, shuffling papers, doing deals, all this stuff. Maybe you come home at the end of the day, there's a little bit of hopefully rest and relaxation, a little bit of entertainment, some more meals, and you're laying your head down on your pillow at night and you think, oh no, there was nothing distinctly Christian about my day. Like actually, here it is, you know, 11 o'clock, 12 o'clock at night, and this is the first time I'm having a God thought. And I'm not asking you to raise your hand, but can you relate? Has it ever happened where you just, I got so busy, and you could say, I had a lot of earthly, normal, human thoughts today. I did not have a lot of set my mind and focus on things above kind of thoughts. But isn't that really the heart of what Paul's warning against? He's saying, if you're a follower of Christ, let that in moment-to-moment -moment decisions reorient your thinking. When I set my mind on marrying this girl over here, and I knew that I loved her and treasured her, it reoriented my thinking in a lot of ways. So some of you were around back then and you know, there were certain things that I just wouldn't go do because they involved money, okay? And I didn't want, no offense, I didn't want to spend my money with you or on you. 
because I was picking up a second job and I was working more hours, burning the candle on both ends, but saving every dollar I could. More income, less outgo. Why? Because I wanted to buy a ring that said to her, I really, really treasure you. Like you're not this cheap little thing to me. I was willing to sacrifice. And it reordered, there were so many decisions throughout the day. It was like, I'm not gonna do that. I am gonna do this. I am gonna have this conversation. I'm not gonna waste my time with that. And a great love reoriented a lot of little mini moment by moment decisions, not just about saving money, but about a lot of things. And my question is just, have you met in Jesus a love like that, that the love is so compelling that it reorients your heart and your mind, your thinking. And that's what Paul's saying. He's saying, Christian, if you've really been raised with Christ to a new life, if you've been redeemed from your past and you know you have this reward for your future, then what are you gonna do with all this hope and truth and joy and love in the meantime, as you walk this earth, you're going to think and act on these things. Okay, and I want you to hear this order. We say this all the time, but there, there's this religious motivation where we could say, okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna set my mind on Christ. I'm gonna do what you just said. I'm gonna, okay, you said focus on things that are a reflection of Christ's heart. Okay, I'm gonna do that and I'm gonna work really hard at that. And then hopefully God notices me and forgives my sin and, and, and I'm okay with God and we, we move forward. No, that's, that's religion. The gospel is, you notice it here? If you've been risen with Christ, let this be true of you. He's saying, you've, you've already received the grace. You've already been reconciled to God. Jesus did it. He did it all. So you've just simply received a gift by faith. But what he's saying is the gospel motivation is that having received the gift of grace, you fix your mind on the one who gave you that gift. You love and return the one who loved you at the cost of his own life. And practically, what would that look like? I just wrote down three things, three things that are probably the most important three things to many of us, time, money, and vocation. And what would it look like to take those precious resources of time, vocation, and money, and instead of just having normal earthy thoughts about them all the time and putting your head on your pillow at night and being like, okay, God, uh, I'm finally here today to talk. Sorry about how things went again. Paul's inviting you into an intentionality with your moment-by-moment -moment decisions. Lord, what would be a way to focus on you right now and reflect your heart instead of just charging on ahead with merely earthly thoughts, merely selfish and contentious thoughts, but to think like Christ in a selfless and loving way. So pursue and focus on the things that are a reflection of Christ's heart. Then one last thing here. A second reorienting truth for the present is the need to live as if your life is actually hidden with Christ in God. And it's actually amazing how much ink is spilled by commentators saying, man, we have no idea what this is talking about. I actually think we do. Because the word that he uses for hidden is a word that means hidden for safekeeping. So here's the second way I'll give it to you that I think that, that reorienting your life around the death, resurrection, and future glory of Christ changes you. Here's the point. Find your identity and security in Christ. See, he goes on here to say, Christ is your life. Christ is your 
self. He's saying Christ is your everything. He's your identity. He's your satisfaction. So the picture here is that we're not coming to God on our own and just being like, God, I hope I was good enough. The picture here where he says Christ is your life. Christ died. Christ conquered death. Christ rose. Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Now Christ is your life. You're hidden in Christ. So the picture is when I'm approaching God, I am clothed in the righteousness and the truth and the holiness and the beauty and the justice and the mercy of Christ because I'm identified with him. Okay, I've shared this illustration with you before. The letters finally wore off my tubs. Now I do this again, okay? This one here, this is you. This is what Paul's saying. This is your life, okay? And the picture is not that I just, I just go to God and say, like, God, will you accept me? Am I, is my thing clean enough? And this has been through the dishwasher a bunch, so it's, it's not clean enough. It didn't make it, okay? This fell short. You fell short because the dishwasher didn't get you clean enough. Okay, this is, this is God. So that's, that's that picture. God in heaven, you know, or wherever he is, he's everywhere. But you and like, hey, am I good enough? No, you're not, okay? But this is the picture that Paul gives you in this text. He's saying, I mean, for one thing, this is the Holy Spirit. Don't worry about size, okay? This is not about size. But he actually says, like, Christ has given you the gift of the Spirit, and the Spirit is in you. And so that is a fundamental truth that you need to believe, that as you go through life as someone in, in apprenticeship to Jesus, you have the presence of the Spirit in you, and he's for you, okay? So you're going through life, and he's never going to leave. He's not departing. This is not like an Old Testament prayer where you're like, oh, please, 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 don't take your Spirit from me. He's not going to. You have the Spirit of Christ, but what does he say here? He says, you are hidden with Christ. Okay, so the picture here is that this is Christ, and he's saying, I, I hide you in my son. Okay, so this one is Christ, and this Christ is the Christ who died for your sin to pay your debt, to release you from any kind of bondage or debt. Okay, he says, you are hidden with Christ. Hidden with Christ, so you're going through life. And what is your identity? What is your sense of security? You're not just going through life on your own, like, look at me. Did I fail? Oh, I don't want to be defined by my failures. Oh, I succeeded. I want to be defined by my successes. He's like, no, you're hidden in Christ or with Christ. But the last thing there is he says, you're hidden with Christ in God. Okay, so believer, this is a picture of your life. And you're going through life and every single day, every single circumstance, the positive stuff, it's not just you like, look at me. Yes, I'm victorious. Yes, I did it. But also in your failures, also in your brokenness, also in your sin, whether it was an oversight kind of sin, I left something undone, or whether it was just deliberate and you had a moment or even a season of rebellion. Paul reminds you, you are this identified with, you are this associated with Christ and actually with the Trinity, okay? How secure do you think you are in this faith called Christianity because of this God? That's his point. The text is all about identification with Christ. You wanna fix your mind, you wanna fix your stuff, then you fix your mind on Christ, in Christ, and this is the picture of what he's doing with you. And just in closing here, so you understand the value of the person who is in you, 
who is with you, who surrounds you with all that he is, he says this phrase, this Christ who's with you is seated at the right hand of God. Now in scripture, there are so many references to like Jesus or someone seated at the right hand of God. Let me just give this to you. The significance is twofold. One is signifying his rule. And the second is, inter- is, uh, is signifying his intercession. The first says that he's over you. The second says that he's for you. Okay, the position of honor and strength was at the right hand of a king. This is where you put the person you trusted and honored the most. And very often a king would say, nobody sits on my right hand because I don't trust anyone more than I trust me. Okay? But the Father, God the Father says, Jesus, you have completed your work. You've died on the cross. I raise you from the dead. I accept your sacrifice. You ascend to heaven and you're seated here at my right hand because you have all authority. You have all power. You have all glory. I trust you, Jesus. I honor you. And every knee will bow before you someday when you appear. Okay? So he's over you. But what do you think he's doing as he sits there? There's this incredible truth all over the New Testament. He's sitting there. And it's not like he's appearing over the embankment of heaven if there is such a thing. And it probably isn't, but it's just nice imagery of like, oh man, they keep messing up down there. I'm so disappointed. So he's actually doing the opposite. As he sits at the Father's right hand, he has the Father's right ear. He's praying for you. He's mediating this relationship. He's in the position of like an attorney, we would say today, an advocate pleading his own blood, his own sacrifice, his own death over you, saying, you know, Father, just continue to forgive. I paid for that sin. I'm praying for them. He's our defense attorney. He's for you. So as Paul is inviting you into this relationship with Christ by faith, he says, Christ is with you. He's over you. He's for you. And if it's true that we act the way we act because we think the way we think, and some of us are sitting here like, I'd like to get my thinking straightened out so that my priorities, my reactions to things are, are straight. Well, Paul's saying the way to fix our lives, our actions, is by fixing our minds. And the way to fix our minds is by fixing them on the Lord Jesus Christ and believing that all of these associations that he talked about in just four short verses are absolutely true and are active for you right now. God is active for you right now in Christ. Let's pray.